0: Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, separate but unequal, E. Franklin Frazier. By now, you've probably lost count, if you were ever keeping count, of the number of thinkers who emphasized the continuity between traditional African culture and the cultures of the African diaspora. We've seen examples from the early days of the United States, when black Freemasonry was characterized by appeals to the glories of Egypt, to the concern for maintaining a connection to Africa common to the artistic movements of the Harlem Renaissance and Negritude. Indeed, you might have the impression that this is one of the few constants within the diversity of diasporic thought. Every rule has at least one prominent exception, though, and in this case it comes in the writings of E. Franklin Frazier, whose credentials include his being the first black president of the American Sociological Association. A constant of his own writing is his denial of the relevance of Africa for understanding African Americans. He published many studies of black families in the United States, which typically begin by highlighting the cultural disruption caused by slavery. Already in 1928, he referred to this as a well-nigh-complete break with African culture. About a decade later, he repeated the point in almost identical language. The conditions under which the Negro slaves were introduced into America resulted in the practically total loss of African culture. Had he changed his mind a decade after that? Nope. In 1948, he still speaks of the loss of ancestral culture and effacement of memory among slaves. Finally, in his book Black Bourgeoisie, which appeared in the middle of the 1950s, he sets the stage for his discussion of the African-American middle class by asserting that the Negro slaves sloughed off almost completely his African cultural heritage. This is not to say that Franklin never changed his mind, or that his ideas remained static. Far from it. It does show that he didn't mind repeating himself. Still, unless you're four years old, you know that saying the same thing over and over does not make it more convincing. The anthropologist Melville Herskovitz voiced his disagreement in a review of Fraser's 1939 book The Negro Family in the United States. There, Fraser had written, in spite of the efforts of those who would have him dig up his African past, the Negro is a stranger to African culture. Herskovitz instead celebrated the fact that, as he put it, the Negro is a man with a past and a reputable past. At a political level, Herskovitz believed that promoting this idea could undermine race prejudice, and at the level of social science, he believed that cultural norms are more stable than Fraser wished to admit. Fraser would have said that this underestimated the uniquely disruptive nature of enslavement and transport to North America. In particular, the structures of family life were torn apart, with wives separated from husbands and children taken from their parents. For Fraser this meant that the study of the Negro family had to start from a tragic new beginning on southern plantations. There's a certain irony here given that Herskovitz was a white man from Ohio whereas Fraser traced his descendants to the Igbo people and could even remember his grandmother speaking a few Igbo words. But Fraser was not taking his cue from his own family history. He was trying to show how the new situation of enslaved people had shaped their culture he argued that it led to what he called a disorganization of family life, and also a tradition of matriarchy, since children, by necessity, identified more with their mothers than their often absent or unidentified fathers. The effect would have been especially prevalent among those who were forced to work in the fields, who were subjected to greater family disruption than so-called house slaves. According to Fraser, the relatively favored latter group along with free blacks who were often lighter in skin color, were the progenitors of the black middle and upper classes. He would spend much of his career describing this group, culminating in the aforementioned book Black Bourgeoisie, which savagely criticized the black middle class for its lack of culture and lack of solidarity with other members of the race. It was a divisive publication, at first cautiously published only in French. This was in 1955, the year Présence Africaine published Aimé Césaire's Discourse on Colonialism, another work of Africana thought in French, calculated to make people squirm. In the preface of the subsequent English edition of Black Bourgeoisie, Fraser notes with evident pride that working-class Negroes stopped him in the street to shake his hand for writing it, whereas well-to-do African Americans were furious, with one saying it would set the Negro race back 50 years. Frazier was no stranger to causing controversy. Decades earlier, he made a name for himself by publishing an article called The Pathology of Race Prejudice, in which he compared racism to a mental disorder. White Southerners could not think rationally about Black people suffering as they did from a Negro complex. This provocative piece got Frazier chased out of Atlanta, where he was living at the time, in 1927. He wound up in Chicago, where he studied sociology under Robert Park, a pioneer in the field of race studies, whose approach informed Frazier's own work, which he did while working at Fisk University in Nashville and then Howard University in Washington, D.C. Howard is where he had studied as a young man, and his professors there included Alain Locke. Frazier also spent some time teaching math at Tuskegee, where he bridled against what he saw as the anti-intellectual tendencies instilled there by Booker T. Washington. He would later claim that he was forbidden to carry books around on campus, lest anyone get the wrong idea, and tell of how he kept a bale of hay in his room to prove his commitment to the Tuskegee ethos of honest, simple work. When his students asked him what it was for, he replied, for asses to eat. Once he found his vocation as a sociologist, Frazier placed great emphasis on the complex interaction of economics and culture. The sifting of black America into distinct classes was a prime example. This was clearly a case of economic stratification, a tendency that increased with the migration of black people to northern cities. Fraser distinguished geographical zones within urban areas where African Americans lived, corresponding to socioeconomic classes. He argued that the origins of the stratification could be traced to the days of slavery with the way that those house slaves on plantations had absorbed the manners and attitudes of their masters and the preference for lighter skin. fraser points out that although free mulattos were not white, they could thank God that they were not black. He argued that segregation had turned the black community into a self-contained miniature version of America as a whole, separate but unequal. In his study of the socioeconomic stratification of Harlem, he concluded, Where a racial or cultural group is stringently segregated and carries on a more or less independent community life, such local communities may develop the same pattern of zones as the larger urban community. But if Black society reflected American society as a whole, it did so in the manner of a funhouse mirror, or as Fraser himself put it, a prism American values were refracted and distorted under the warping influence of segregation. He remarked that the very existence of a separate Negro community with its own institutions within the heart of the American society is indicative of its quasi pathological character. The isolation of the black community kept its working class members from finding common cause with white workers, which would be in their mutual economic interest. But the problem was not merely the brute fact of separateness. Fraser lamented pathological tendencies among the working-class folk whom he often designated as the Negro masses. He noted, for example, how the admission of their children to Negro colleges inevitably undermined morals and manners at these institutions. In the cities, too, segregation made it impossible for the higher socioeconomic class to move away, quite literally, from undesirable persons causing pernicious influence even among the wealthy. These elitist comments have not aged well, nor has his basic assumption that black people make gains in civilization through participation in the white world. Yet there was a lasting contribution made in that same book, or rather in Fraser's career-long criticism of middle-class black society and its failure to contribute to racial uplift. Here, his point was fundamentally anti-elitist, as he charged black professionals with abandoning the less fortunate members of their race. Early in his career, he saw them in terms of the classical Marxist notion of a bourgeoisie, as would-be industrialists. And you can see how his experiences with the economic aspirations of Tuskegee might have encouraged that thought. But soon enough, he came to realize that the black middle class were properly recognized as white-collar workers and small business owners they rejected the traditional culture of the black masses formed on the plantation and bound strongly to religion. Inevitably, Fraser mentions the Negro spiritual as a typical expression of this traditional worldview. Instead, the black bourgeoisie adopted the goals and values of white America, forming a powerful commitment to capitalism and even an aesthetic preference for white racial features. Anticipating a famous part of the autobiography of Malcolm X, Frazier mocks the way that publications aimed at the black middle class are full of advertisements for products to straighten hair and lighten skin. Instead of showing real solidarity, the middle class Negro pretends that he is proud of being a Negro while rejecting everything that identifies him with Negroes. Frazier goes so far as to say that middle class blacks display the mark of oppression more than the lower class Negro, who found a shelter from the contempt of the white world in his traditional religion, his songs, and in his freedom from a gnawing desire to be recognized and accepted. To which you might say, what's so awful about wanting to be recognized and accepted? Wasn't this precisely the goal of integration? Fraser's answer here is nuanced. For starters, he distinguishes different ways that African Americans might try to merge with white America. Amalgamation, acculturation, and assimilation. Amalgamation would be simple race-mixing through reproduction. Acculturation is what it sounds like, adopting cultural values from whites, which, as we've seen, he takes to be characteristic of the black bourgeoisie. True assimilation would go further by eliding all racial differences. Black people would, as Fraser put it, no longer think of themselves as Negroes first, and only secondarily as Americans. But none of these captured Fraser's hopes for the black community. He wanted to see integration, of course, but claimed that this should not mean annihilation, self-effacement, the escaping from identification. So this is a have-your-cake-and-eat-it view. Fraser wanted black Americans to benefit economically from integrating with wider American society while retaining and taking pride in what was distinctive to them as a group. Furthermore, The desperate attempts of the black middle class to enter the world of their white peers ignored a fundamental fact, namely that white people did not see them as peers. As one scholar has put it, Fraser believed that, in becoming integrated and assimilated, they were deferring an inevitable and necessary confrontation with problems in the economic and social organization of U.S. society. The barriers of racism and segregation meant that black people were simply not going to be able to compete on equal terms. Fraser deconstructs what he calls the myth of negro business, arguing that black-owned businesses exist solely to cater to black people whom white people refuse to serve. Black-owned banks, too, are in a hopeless situation, since they are confined to making money off the relatively small-scale trade that exists in the parallel black economy. The middle class have ignored all this, in their enthusiasm for the idea of capitalist enterprise. In their struggle to attain American middle-class ideals, they gave the impression of being super-Americans. The black bourgeoisie, then, lives in a world of make-believe, clinging to the values of a white elite world into which they will never be welcomed. He extends this analysis to explain why the words of many great Africana thinkers fell on deaf ears. While he praises the artists and thinkers of the Harlem Renaissance for avoiding the inferiority complex that besets the black bourgeoisie, he candidly admits that their achievements were met with indifference by most black people. He likewise attributes the failure of Marcus Garvey's nationalist project to a lack of support from the middle class. In fact, the black bourgeoisie have no economic or social philosophy at all, according to him, as demonstrated by the vapid publications that are aimed at them even Du Bois comes in for some rough treatment at Frasier's hands, despite Du Bois's frequent support of him and favorable review of Frasier's book on the Negro family as offering insight into human conditions everywhere. Frazier was among those who thought that Du Bois became too tolerant of segregation, and called him an intellectual who toys with the idea of the Negro as a separate cultural group. But whatever the failings of those Du Bois once called the Talented Tenth, the main fault lay with the black bourgeoisie, who simply had no interest in any ideas sufficiently radical to support uplift for all black folk. They've run from Du Bois and Paul Robeson, sneered Frazier. Obviously then Fraser could dish out criticism, he also had to learn how to take it. One relatively mild complaint was that much of his argument about the black bourgeoisie also applied to other ethnic groups, for instance Jews. Fraser was happy simply to concede this point, and does so in the preface of his book. Yet he also believed that opportunities to join the upper echelons of American society were uniquely constrained in the case of black people, because of racist attitudes and the obvious visual distinction of skin color. More vigorous criticisms of Fraser came posthumously, as scholars have found fault with his own embrace of traditional family structures as a normative ideal. Thus he's been called a brother who was strong enough to collect a lot of important data but fell victim to theory based on racist white liberal ideology, and charged with tacitly comparing the black family to that of the white middle class, and thereby emphasizing its weaknesses instead of attempting to understand the nature of its strengths. There is perhaps a sign of the complexity of his thought in the ironic fact that, after mounting a forthright attack on the black bourgeoisie for embracing the values of white America. Frazier was blamed for doing exactly the same thing. And then there was the small matter of Africa. Frasier died in 1962, not long before a sharp and prominent rise in interest in African heritage among African Americans. Insisting on the irrelevance of African history was out, and wearing dashikis was in. Frasier might have shrugged that off, but as a social scientist, should have taken more seriously the evidence adduced by sociologists, musicologists, religious scholars, and linguists to show that African culture did live on in the diaspora. An example might be Lorenzo Turner, an ally of Herskovits, whose research showed continuity between African languages and the dialect spoken among the Gullah people, islands of South Carolina and Georgia. But it would be very wrong to suppose that Fraser was not interested in Africa at all, One of his first attempts at social science, written as a young student, was a paper on family structures in East Africa. He would go on to join the Council on African Affairs in 1941, shortly after Paul Robeson became its chairman. Fraser spoke out in favor of the non-aligned movement, in which African countries, among others, set themselves up as a third force outside the polarized opposition of the Cold War. He deplored the erosion of traditional African values by modernization, And white domination, and admired African intellectuals of his own day for fighting against this tendency. Unlike their American counterparts, these were true leaders who prioritized the mental, moral, and spiritual rehabilitation of the African. Though he did not think that African culture was crucial to the history of African Americans, he was convinced that the African Americans of his day could look to Africa's present for a model of effective leadership of the sort that was so lacking in America eloquent testimony to this is a present given by Fraser himself, he bequeathed his personal library to Kwame Nkrumah, the philosopher and leader of Ghana. We're going to follow his lead in episodes to come, when we discuss Nkrumah and a number of other African thinkers from the middle of the 20th century. Next time, though, we're going to consider a scholar who had his own ideas about turning to history. We've already had a chance to talk about his book, Black Jacobins, a famous analysis of the Haitian Revolution back when we dealt with that seismic event in Africana history. But that was only part of the earth-shattering achievement of C.L.R. James. We quake in anticipation of telling you all about him in the next installment of The History of Africana Philosophy.